0: This lady was posted to the embassy office um, to give information on Australia and to work what, in general, an information office does in another country. Um, The migration office was responsible for all the matters relating to migration. She had a daughter who was a very, very competent... Still, a shorthand typist, and she had a job with the supreme, as with the general in charge of the supreme headquarters Allied Europe. That was the um, first thing that was set up after the war um, to unite all the nations that were working together in Europe at that time. The supreme headquarters Allied Europe. Um, It was run mainly by the Americans and the British. Um, And this general had his main office covering Europe in Schäveninger, which is a suburb of The Hague, in a barracks. And this girl worked there as his private secretary. And it was a good job. She had what they called cosmic clearance, which is above top secret, and that was fine now my husband and i joined the commonwealth club which was a gathering of british um, british staff embassy staff um staff of nato had been set up by then which was a, um, an important thing at that time mm. uh, there were representatives of nato there were representatives of british firms american firms Um, aviation, building, all these things that were coming up and very new were top secret. And the Russians were keen to get what they could. And they had spies in every walk of life. Every, every, um, they had them in Phillips, they had them in um, Fokker's, they had them just everywhere where they could get information. So, this girl worked for this man, and we had this club and there was a big party, a big dance in the Commonwealth Club night, so we went there and During the evening, we found the girl and her mother were there not not with us. they were sitting at another table, and she was with her boyfriend, a suave looking man, a bit older than she, Um, and um, they were dancing cheek to cheek, and I I said to people I was with, I wonder who that is. Oh, nobody knew this man. And below me down, there was a a sudden interval, and he came up to me and asked me to dance. So I did, and I found out he was the first secretary at the Russian embassy so i thought ah so he wanted my telephone number and i gave it to him because i wondered you know i thought well this is worth following up so i gave him my number and we finished dancing he found he asked me if i'd been working in london and of course he knew he knew what i'd been doing in london you can bet you so i said oh well yes i come from london but uh, I I live here and I'm working here. And anyway, he um, went off and I sat down where I was. And they carried on all evening. So after the show was over, I started to think. And I thought, no, this is very serious. If this girl works there and she's got this man in tow. So I followed them.
1: Molly Sasson and I am Alistair Marks, and you are listening to Coming Up Next. A quick little intro before we get to part two of my interview with Molly Sasson. The first part is available on iTunes. If you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend you go find us uh, Coming Up Next on iTunes or www.comingupnext.com.au. Put on part one of my interview with Molly Sasson and listen to what has been quite an extraordinary life as well as finding a whole host of other interviews with some of the top creatives in the world. You can find us on Twitter at Cun Podcast on Facebook. Give us a like, facebook.com slash Cun Podcast. And if you're feeling saucy, jump on iTunes, hit subscribe. Maybe give us a five-star review if you're liking what you hear. But from me, Alistair Marks, that is all, and here is part two of my interview with Molly Sasson.
0: I watched what was happening, and I sat outside the house. They got, only because they left in the in CD car 491, which was his embassy car, which I was always looking for. And he went into the house, into the mother's flat with her, at eleven o'clock that night, and I sat there till five thirty in the morning when he came out. The lights were off at eleven or just after, and I sat there waiting, expecting him to go home, but he didn't. Half past five came, the door opened, and he ran over to his car and left. So then, I got onto Peter. He was the head of the the counter espionage branch. And I told him, and I said this, you better know this because that's what happened. Pillar talk. So he immediately rang up the chief who lived in another town. And the chief said to him, get to see the general immediately. The girl has to leave now. The girl was discharged by 12 o'clock that day. Mm out of the job. And of course, there were all sorts of reactions. The mother, of course, knew, the whole family knew, but um, she had to be interviewed. And uh, very soon after that, they left, came back to Australia. Mm. And it was awkward for me because I knew this lady, um, and she'd been a friend of mine, so I kept that very quiet. I was very sorry for her that it happened, but um, it couldn't. It couldn't be left unsaid. She had. To, she had to. That had to be told because uh, she was involved without knowing it, mm. and mm. the daughter could have ended up in jail. Mm. So that was one of the jobs, mm. which later they uh, made a big fuss of, and that was. Very good, and there was another one—a man who was a student. He came from East Germany, Hans Schiller, and uh, he was uh, very, very friendly with um, um, a foreign affairs girl, and she moved in with him. This is in Australia. In in Hague. In Hague. This is all the Hague and um, I had a word with her um, and I, she said, oh he's wonderful, and, then, and she she was having an affair that was quite obvious and he was um, trying to get things out of her because she later, the BVD interviewed her and uh, she told them, and he was gone within a week Mm. Out of the country.
1: Mm. Well, wow.
0: So these are the sort of things I did. Mm. There were a couple of others with, which, all similar talent spotting stuff. Mm. Um, and Brigadier's Pride was very happy with that, of course, because it increased the liaison and, um, well, it was... He was... I think he was pleased that that happened Um, and it I think it was 1967 we had a long talk one day and he said to me Molly he said I want you in Canberra will you accept an appointment and that came like a bomb I never, never thought of coming to Australia and I said to him well I said I'm You know, I've got my husband to consider. My mother's not well. She was in a London hospital and I said, it's all too far away. So he said, well, think about it, I want you there. He said, I'll give you a good job. He said, I'll give you an office, a car, a house, and I want you there. So I started thinking. Mother died in 67. And my husband's uh, job ended because Fokker's business was going down the drain and all foreign personnel were given notice as the first. And then the Dutch followed and, of course, it went bust. As we all know, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, So we um, finally left in 69 Um, I got a letter in 68, we'll go back a year, um, with everything in writing, and we decided we'd do it. So we left in August by ship. We arrived, no, it was July, by ship. I took my two cats. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going without them.
1: <laughs> no quarantine laws in those days. Oh,
0: Yes. Terrible! It was six months know. in quarantine oh, well. in England, and then they had uh, sprats collected them from the uh, from the, from the quarantine station. Took them to the ship, and we met them on, at the ship. They were very well looked after on the ship, and um, they were on top deck with a, quite a spacious spot mm. place, and they had that cuddle box, which was a big travel <laughs> container, and they slept in that. And the man who looked after them was charming. He was an Italian seaman, mm. and he fed them all sorts of treats, and they had a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> we could see them every day and walk them on the deck. But when we got to Sydney, we had a terrible trip. We had a, we were struck by a freak wave outside of Perth, oh, wow. and um, we ne- we were nearly shipwrecked. It was dreadful. We lost all the china on the boat. We had. Hundreds of people were injured. The boat, the ship, went like that and like that and like that three times.
1: Well, so for anyone who can't see, it's you're oh, seesawing. Oh, were
0: flying all over the place, people, and nobody was killed, but there were some nasty accidents, mm. and thankfully nobody thrown overboard, but mm. a lot of things went overboard. So um, we went around the cape, and it was a six week trip. Yes. Um... But uh, that was awful, and um, we got over it, but children and some of the passengers were very nervous for the rest of the trip.
1: Mm, Understandably so.
0: Anyway, we got to Melbourne, and then we arrived, and the first thing that happened was two men walked into my cabin. We packed up our things to get off, and um, they said Brigadier Spry had had a heart attack. was in hospital, and we were not to stop off in Melbourne. We were to go on to Canberra, mm. uh, to Sydney, because you couldn't go to Canberra, to Sydney. So we got off in Sydney, and we were met there by two other asio people I didn't know, and um, taken to a hotel. We had four days in Sydney. I was interviewed in Sydney by some man I don't know who he was, um, asked me about my travel and said well you'll have to fly to Canberra and uh, you'll have to buy a ticket to get to Canberra and I said do I have to buy my own ticket? He said yes you will because uh, we're supposed to get off here so we can't uh, pay you. So I had to buy two tickets, one for my husband and one for me and I thought that was a bad start. So we got to Canberra coming in these are just by the ways but m- my first husband looked out of the window and he said my god we're making an emergency landing where the hell are we we're <laughs> supposed to the pilot had told us we were landing in Canberra hit, uh, capital capital Canberra mm. and he looked he said it's not a capital my god look at it They're all little houses <laughs> 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 and we did land <laughs> it, it looked like a nature strip we landed on. That was Canberra. It was Canberra. And a tiny little hut
1: That's the thing.
0: He said, is this
1: Canberra? I said, well, it must be. So yeah, said, not so, much has changed. I, <laughs> 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 so
0: then there were two other guys, one of them I knew who'd been in Cologne, and he was detailed to come and meet me. There was another guy, and... Um, they drove us to the hotel. We went to the Rex Hotel. Nice-looking hotel. We thought, oh, that's all right. Went in. We couldn't get dinner that night. We uh, dumped our luggage, and we started. We went out. Our car was sitting on the wharf in Sydney. We couldn't get, because we wanted to land in Sydney, drive our car. Afterwards, we were going to dra- drive back to, go to Canberra from Sydney. But... When we were, we, were, we were supposed to get off in Melbourne um, and then we were going to go to Sydney and catch our car and then drive to Melbourne, to Canberra. That's how it was going to be. Didn't work out that way, so we didn't have a car. So we had to walk. So we walked from, from the Vex Hotel into the city, which wasn't too far, and um, we couldn't find a restaurant to have lunch. And the only thing was a pub and the noise and the beer, the smell of beer was hit us in outside and there was a terrible noise in there my husband said, well, I'm not taking you in there. <laughs> and we couldn't find a place. The centre of Canberra had a children's roundabout covered over for the weekend. And this was Canberra. Mm. So, we walked a bit further and we went to Tilopia Park and we saw some kids playing and then we saw some dogs and we thought well there are some people here that's one
1: <laughs> <laughs> all oh, hope is not lost
0: oh my god and then um, um, he asked the policeman where we could eat Well, we went without lunch, we didn't have lunch but then he said where can we have a decent meal for dinner so the policeman sent us to a Spanish restaurant on Red Hill by taxi. So we got them in this huge place with all these tables set and nobody there. So we opened the door and wandered in hoping to find somebody and we did. There was this bandy-legged waiter who was the image of Manuel from the <laughs> Faulty Towers who came waddling out and speaking in Spanish and oh, it was uh, just like him. And, uh,
1: he probably learned English from a book as well.
0: I <laughs> was the only waiter in the place. Yeah. No cook, we didn't see a soul but him. So he asked, my husband spoke a bit of Spanish, and he said he'd been there three months and he wanted to. Uh, and so. <laughs>
1: For anyone who can't see, she's doing the uh, <laughs> slip your throat sign.
0: <laughs> anyway, he got us some sort of meal, I don't know what it was, I can't remember and we had something and we left <coughs> feeling very depressed and mm. quite lost, and that's you thought, the word
1: this is our new life
0: L-O-S-T, we'd brought all our furniture, we brought our car, we brought everything, even the piano and the whole lot, everything we had and the DG had said to me, now look I'm sure you'll love it, I'm sure you'll like it, you'll want it. you'll really like the job. It's a good job and you'll enjoy it. Um but he said you've um we will pay for all your furniture and everything to come over. So they did do that. So we brought everything. Maybe not wise, but we did. Mm. So <clears throat> we that was that was really the draw card, you know, to sort of get me here with everything Mm. (coughs) so we arrived there was no sign of a house or or a car at that moment so I went to the office in the morning top floor of uh, Anzac West which was occupied by the Ministry of Supply so it went up in a lift pressed a little button open went the door and there was a receptionist there, and she said to me, "Oh, are you from the Hague?" I said, "Yes." And she said, "Oh, come in, we expect you." They call you the Dragon. I said, oh. <laughs> oh God! So
1: <laughs> 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 it's a good first day. She,
0: she wheeled me into the the um, deputy director of the regional office in Canberra. Mm. The regional director was on holiday for four weeks, so I didn't see him until well into it. And this gentleman was very odd. He came over to me, very refined, very tall, grey haired, bespectacled, kissed my hand, which nearly killed me. I couldn't believe it. There was so much that had gone on before. <laughs> <laughs> Sat me down, gave me coffee, wanted a cigarette. I said, No, I don't smoke. So he got me coffee and he started talking to me in German. Mm. And I started, oh, we chatted about the, the trip and the job. And, and he said, about well, And course, the pub. And the pub. And I I did tell him, I said, we were very shocked when we arrived because and he laughed. <laughs> and he said, I felt the same when I came to Canberra. And I thought, oh, he's British, but he wasn't. He was part Danish. Anyway, that's by the way. Anyway, we had a chat, and then he took me to my office, which was a very nice office, well furnished, quite luxurious, a big cupboards, and thought, this is good, I can set up here. And for the moment, I was, I thought, I can make something of this. And he went, and I talked to the, one of the young guys who was sitting in the corner. He said, I'm only here for a little while. I'm waiting for a place to go to. And um, we had a chat and he told me he had trouble with his accommodation. He said everything was told would be fine, but I haven't had my accommodation. I'm still waiting for my last week's salary. And things are not very bright, he said, but I have to put up with it. I've taken on the job. Anyway, that was just him. I started looking around and I found documents six months old, and older, which had never been actioned. All sorts of information, top secret, secret. What's the matter with this place? Then I went into the man next door, who was um, a man called Bill McNally, who'd been a naval officer, and the first thing he said to me is, oh my God, girl, you're, you're in for it. You're really in for trouble here. He said, they don't like women, they don't want women. And he said, you're you're going to have a hard time. He said, I'm getting out. I've applied to a job in America. I hope I get it. So that was my first couple of days. Hmm. And the more I saw, the more I feared what was going to happen. And then I went into somebody who was supposed to be the coordinator, a grey-haired man not very bright, he he spoke to me about um, the weather. And then he said to me, well, he said, a woman's place isn't here, we don't want women in this organization. He said, a woman's place is in the kitchen and in bed. And I looked at him and I said, your director brought me here. Oh, well, he said, Well, you have to make of it what you can, he said.
1: This is in 1967?
0: 69. 69. Yeah, when we told. And I thought, now this is the final end, isn't it? What am I going to do? So I went home and I had a big talk with my husband. And he said, well, we can always go back. But he said, you've got to give it a go. You can't just move right now. Mm. Wait till the regional director comes back. Who I knew well from London. So I thought, well, that's that'll be that'll be a help when he comes back. So I blundered my way through the first weeks. Um, I met the surveillance staff. I met the um, the uh, intercept staff. One man I thought was a bit wonky. He was very young and very flippant and drank a lot. Um, I thought, I'd better watch him. He was Russian. Um, And his sister, also Russian, of course, came from Shanghai. And I thought, there's a weird lot of people here. Mm. And the more I met, the more weird it became. Because none of them seemed to me to know what they were doing. And as the days go by and I had information, I didn't know who to go to. I I didn't trust anybody to start with. So it was a hell of a time. It was awful. And it got worse and worse and worse. Um, Then one day I sat down with myself and I said, Now look, you've got to do something. What about a daily intelligence report? And that's what I started on. Which became famous. It became... The menu for everyone, it also went ran all the posts. And it wakened them up because they had work to do. They got nothing before. And what was I doing? This is what I was getting from different quarters. What are you doing? All this stuff, you don't need to tell everybody about this. I said, everybody has to know if they're working on it. I mean, it's a missing link for many people. If you're working on it, you need to know. Mm. Oh, they didn't see that at all. Anyway, whenever I went into this coordinator with an operation planned, he'd say, uh, "Oh, go and have a cup of tea," or "Oh, you work too hard." Huh. Oh no, no, he said, "We can't do that. Leave that alone. You can't." You and I had to, I depended on him because he was in charge of the surveillance teams. I wanted somebody to go out and do something and he would give give them okay mm. so then I got um, friendly with a man called Schram he was in charge of the surveillance team he was the one responsible to get people moving so he used to do things for me and bring it to me and he and I then started to see eye to eye he'd already realized what a hopeless place it was and the Two or three years after I got there, he left and he went to the federal police, became a commissioner. Mm. He was far too intelligent for that place. (laughs) And I felt like a fish out of water, Mm. murder.
1: It seems like everyone around the world seemed to know that there were moles and that ASIO had been infiltrated. Totally. I read an article where you um, had invited a CIA agent to come to ASIO and he just kind of laughed and said, no, you've got malts, we're not coming anywhere near. Yeah, well, near.
0: I met him at a dinner party. The regional director came back. And the regional director was a good friend of mine and he was until he died. We kept in close touch. He'd only died in 08, Colin Brown. Mm. And um, he knew too. Because when I went to him with parliamentarians who were so deeply involved, it, it was dangerous. And I went into this idiot man and I said, look, this is dangerous and I can't, you have to do something here. He said, that's what we I said, that's what we're here for. And he looked at me and he said, don't you touch any parliamentarian, they're out of, absolutely out of, you don't touch them.
2: Hmm.
0: I don't want to hear about it. So I went to Colin, the regional director, and the only one I could really trust. And I said, well, what am I going to do? I'm here to do this and I can't. And he'd say, "Molly, don't open a can of worms." And then I started to think, "What? Are, where are the worms?"
1: Hmm. So they just wanted to kind of keep sweep everything under the carpet. Yes,
0: from the word go, that I went there right the way till I left.
1: Did you know when you went there that the that how bad the infiltration or the the mole no. scenario was? No, no, I didn't.
0: Spry had told me. There were moles in the department. And he said, I can't, I can't do anything. And I said, why not? Because he said, I have the government against me. I have both parties against me. And he said, I have people who will um, do me great damage in civilian life. Mm. And they were the, the people like uh, like um, Everett, for instance, he was a ruling communist and an agent, the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs.
1: Mm. In
0: the 70s? In the 70s. It's all on record. I mean, they were there.
1: Mm. And the, the, the
0: whole of the Foreign Office was involved. I went and talked to a man called... Um, I didn't mention that because um, there were some things I didn't say but in the book, but um, I went to see... Um, what was his name? Throssel, Rick Throssel. Very soon after I, I arrived, and there was a man called Stenning in the embassy, and he was a GRU man, no doubt about it. And he used to see our, region, our deputy regional director also. He used to go, go. They used to go out together. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? And. I went to see Throssel with this man I wanted to PNG. And I'd worked hard on it. I had a whole analysis with evidence and everything. And I said, this man should be PNG'd.
1: What's PNG'd?
0: Persona non oh. grata. Right. The government gives them 48 hours notice and asks them to leave, because they're not here for the interests of the country. Mm. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, we don't want to. Expelled Russians, he said, they're our friends. For God's sake, he said, they do good trade with us. Look at all the trade we're using—agricultural machinery, aircraft. We've got all sorts of things we're selling, wool. And I said, but you're here for every other reason. A trade is one one branch, but I said this is dangerous. This man must go. He's 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 suborning Australian citizens. He's going around running agents in Canberra, agents of influence. And he said, um, no, he said, don't you do that. He said, we can't do that. No, no, no business. And I left and I started thinking, I said, this man, this man's on the wrong side. And I mentioned it to Colin Brown secretly. And he said, don't talk about foreign affairs ever. And he knew and he couldn't do anything and he was the regional director.
2: Mm.
1: So how did you, I guess, how did? You, how, where do you go from there?
0: Well, I, I was I, I was like Alice in Wonderland. I sat there and I looked and I looked and I ran and wherever I looked I saw something stupid. I saw something lost, something gained that was no use. The, the people in charge were off having dinners in, in the and Leagues Club, coming back at four o'clock, feet on desk, nothing to do. This is how it was.
1: Mm. And what was the impact for the sort of greater Australian community of this kind of behaviour?
0: The greater Australian community thought it was a joke. I spoke to friends of mine who didn't know I worked there and would never know I worked there. And they said to me, I oh, don't talk about Asia, they don't know what they're doing. Huh. And then, um, I went to see um the nephew of um Melba, the singer, and they had a market garden just outside Canberra, and I went there and we were buying plants, and we found out she was and uh, well, who she was. We were introduced to them by another friend and um they had us there for for dinner we had them back for dinner we knew them well and um one day, one of our guys said, um, do you think um, I, I've got an agent in mind? And I said, who is it? And it was this man. This, uh <laughs> I said, you can't go near there. Keep away from there. Because I used to visit there. <laughs> huh. So, and they wouldn't have known much either. But when I casually mentioned ASIO just to see what, if he knew anything, and I said, um, you know, fancy ASIO not not noticing that or something. And they said, oh, they're a joke. And they were well established in Canberra.
1: Mm. What was the, uh, I guess, the political impact of having all these, spot- like, just being infiltrated by a communist kind of regime?
0: Well, there were a lot of agents. Uh, there were, well, we, we had a few agents, but I... I know that some of them were doubtful people and they were used as agents.
1: Has this turning a blind eye continued through the 80s and the 90s and even up until now?
0: I'm a, You see, I left in 83. Mm. So what happened after 83, I can't say. I know when I, other than what I've read and what I've heard. But up until 83 as I put it in my book, and I mean this very sincerely, I learned nothing. And I did nothing of value. Because even the Daily Intelligence Report, which I would have looked upon as useful, um, by the time I left, it was gone. It was, it gradually died a death. And we were back where we started. And I think the people who took over were judges. And judges are not intelligence officers. Intelligence officers are special people. I'm sorry to have to say this, and I'm not being boastful, but there are people who will never make intelligence officers. Because you have to analyze, you have to watch, you have to feel, you have to see... It's a very difficult job to analyze a person and to know what they're doing and to be able to discuss with them and to get behind their thoughts and to get their trust and their confidence. And if you don't do that and if you don't have got the patience to go into a person's life, to make quite sure that they've got a happy life with a good conscience that you can trust, then you'll never get a good agent. Mm. And that's where the Russians excelled in. Their agent masters were second to none. They were very well-educated, very clever people. Um, Some of them had... Um, two or three degrees. They were. They were. They were um, people. People. They they studied people and they knew what they were doing. None. Of, we, none of our people do that. Did that. They came. They were baker boys. They were butchers. They were taxi drivers. They they had no background. And certainly no background. Even if they were clerks before, they had no background in what they were supposed to be doing. Mm.
1: Must have been very frustrating
0: in our job in England. You had to have a, a background in in this work. Otherwise, you you couldn't do it. Mm. And in the air force, we had training. We were trained by. We had intelligence courses. We had we had operational courses. We knew what we were what we were looking for and why we were doing it and how we were doing it. Mm. But there was nothing like that in Asia. So they came in off the street, so to speak, having been baking bread or whatever they were doing, <laughs> policemen perhaps.
1: Walking dogs.
0: Yeah, God knows. And and they came in and they were sitting at a desk. Some of them couldn't even write a letter properly. And they got promoted. <laughs> and you read it in the book. I mean, it, it, it it's all gospel truth, what I've said in there.
1: mm one thing I'm quite uh, fascinated with, this is a little bit off topic of what you were saying, but kind of in line. One thing that I love talking to all of my guests about is if they remember the first time... Well, most of my guests are entertainers and performers. So the question is usually, do you remember the first time that you entertained people? But I guess for you, the question would be, do you, do you remember that first time when you were um, given an assignment? Uh, where you were kind of put in that situation and you felt like this is something that I want to continue to do?
0: Well, I went from uh, one training course to another before I touched any intelligence work. Um, I was trained in um, administration, Air Force law, um, Air Force commitments, uh, what we stood for, what we had to do, where we'd, you know, um the setup of the air force um how we went from station to to group to group to command and then on and on um and the different professions and trades that were involved and what we were uh, how we went about our work um there was a big big um feeling of loyalty and unity Uh, we were all doing something together big teamwork Um, um, and then we were on courses and we we mixed in courses we worked in groups as well Um, my very first job um, was uh, I was given a pile of letters and told that uh, I was to read through them and there was shocking most of it was shocking handwriting and um most of it was in Gothic, it was German correspondent. Nobody else could read it. Um and um I was told to read them and any letters that were looked suspicious or felt suspicious I was translate and park send them to the area concerned either to Five or to the police or to uh, um, my, own, my own boss, who mm. was a group captain in London.
1: And so that gave you quite a strong sense of uh, value and importance. Yes, yes, yes. Mm.
0: And then I was uh, interviewing people who had arrived in England with uh, weird excuses or something that was looked suspicious. And... Um, that was all in very i do not the whole thing was interesting. I never had a job in the Air Force. It wasn't interesting, mm. and didn't get my whole attention mm. and that's how I was trained
1: mm It's quite an extraordinary life that you've lived mm, mm. What would you like your legacy to be?
0: It's Probably only the book <laughs> 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 that's all I've got left, I think. Um there's a lot there still, but uh what I needed to say to this to, to Australia um is what's in there. I want Australia to know that a beautiful country I loved it and loved it enough to stay in it. Um I came here for a purpose which I failed, but I hope the book will put it straight. Mm. I couldn't do what I came to do I promised to do mm. and that's why i left i I dedicated the book to the man I promised, and the whole thing was unnecessary because of spies. We could have had a good service we could have we could have done our duty properly, and we didn't.
1: What would you like to see changed for the future?
0: Proper training, proper involvement, loyal people, and a better justice system, mm-hmm. and good government, which we all want. Yes. To have to have ministers elected in government who were in government against the constitution is an unacceptable way of life Mm. and that's what we had Jim Cairns Bert James Senator Gitzel so my message to Australia is wake up, it's all coming back history repeats itself you can see it in Germany now and it's just started.
1: What's happening in Germany now?
0: Well, East Germany um, is quite strong in Nazism still. They've never really come to terms with changing their lifestyle. Germans like to be told what to do and how to do it. And the, and the East Germans got to do that in the last period of time where they had to obey, and it was that all the stars would would have them. They are made that way. They must have drill, they must have pattern to live in, and they must know what they're going to get, more than perhaps anybody else in Europe.
1: They're militarized. Mm. And so you can see this coming back again.
0: It's coming back. Mm. And... um, Hungary is, has already got Nazis in their government. Currently. And uh, the the atmosphere now is stronger than it's ever been since the war, since all these migrants have been allowed in. You can hear it, something. You can read. You can read through the news bulletins.
1: Mm. And, and
0: it's going to be if 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 this goes on and more and more migrants go into Germany, there'll be a revolution. And there'll be a Hitler standing up, like we had before. After the last war, Hitler gained ground. And after this, there'll be another person getting up. Merkel will lose her seat, and somebody will get up and grab it. Watch it.
1: Mm. So what's the solution to... There is you... no
0: solution, we have to let it go because it's got to play its play its course.
1: Mm.
0: You can't stop these things. But Merkel is losing her ground and the Germans are getting thoroughly fed up. They've welcomed them to start with, now they've got this enormous overflow. Of course the others haven't done the same. Other countries have been more sensible. Even Turkey has kicked up. They're not going to take any more. Britain has managed to uh, offer them, I think Oh Mrs Merkel's offered them three or four thousand million um, euros to uh, do something about it. And I think they've increased their intake, but uh, the migrants are not staying there. They want to go elsewhere. They're not well situated in Turkey.
2: Mm.
0: And the Turks have had enough too. So the whole of Europe has been disorganized, and that's, and that's a, a, a very dangerous sign because unity in, in NATO is already wonky financially. And now it's get all, getting all this, they're all doing something else. One wants to do it, one doesn't, one does it half, and, and one feels sorry but can't. Have you followed the news?
1: Uh, not recently, no.
0: No? Well, that's how it is now. And in Russia, um, Putin is a very dangerous man. He was a KGB torturer. And he has now made the grade of statesman. He was entertained by the Queen and the Golden Coach. And now they've entertained the Chinese, going up the mall in the Golden coach, And the Chinese are now already planning something in in the Chinese sea. They've got these islands they're building up. The Americans are taunting them by going there with their warships standing there outside and saying, well, we don't accept what you think. Where is it going? China, Russia? Russia's doing funny things in the Middle East. In one way it's good, in the other way it's very dangerous. How's it going to end? Where's Obama going to go? Mm. Who's going to take over in America? Mm. All it needs is one person to make a mistake, one pilot to drop a bomb in an area where it's going to cause trouble. Mm. And then we've got Kim Jong-un sitting there waiting with his atomic bomb. He's wanting to throw it somewhere soon. I think the world is coming to an end. I think we've gone so far there's no no retreat. Mm. we've We've spoiled our water. we've spoiled our air. we've polluted everything we can pollute. We've killed off over four hundred species of animals in the last ten years. Where are we going? Where can we hide? Mm. Seriously.
1: I, I don't have an answer for you. All I can think of is that, you know, it. I guess it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about respecting what's been created and... There you are. Finding love starts. and...
0: That's where it starts.
1: Mm. Returning to that state. Yes.
0: We have to go back to where we were mm. to make good citizens. mm We've had too much, we've been too greedy, we've had everything we've wanted, to a point. We've always had poor people, but they're happier than we are, probably. Some of the natives living somewhere, are happier than we are. Mm. Some people have disappeared out of society and gone and gone wild, living somewhere, and they're probably happier than we are.
1: I imagine they would be. Yes. It would be quite a simple life.
0: We were intended to lead a simple, happy life. Mm. And when I look back at my childhood and the happiness that children had and the happiness that families had, it's all gone. Mm. We had childhood. These children
1: haven't. Mm. Well, I guess it's just a different...
0: That's why I wrote in my book the closeness I had to my mother. And what she did with me and what I learned to do at home as a child. Mm. Children today have none of that.
1: Mm. So I guess in a way it's a return to simplicity. Yes. Mm.
0: And joy in the in in every day. Joy in joy in living in the, in living in the garden or a in enjoying with nature and with mm. things that we like doing and having.
1: Mm. We need to go outside a bit more.
0: But computers and and all these phones and um, I won't use a computer unless I have to. Mm. I hate mobile phones. They're useful, I agree. And and computer, you can do business with them immediately. But the essence of it is wrong. Mm. Where is all this going
1: up here? It's also a detachment from human connection. It is. Mm.
0: Children and their parents are nowhere near where children and their parents belong. Mm. Children of nine, ten years old, they're on the computer, they know things that I didn't know when I was 20.
1: mm It certainly is an important time to be spreading positivity and spreading love and returning to all of this simplicity that we're talking about and to be in service of that, to be in service of people uh, and the human race and even beyond that, animals and and nature and plants. It's a very important. I think it's always important to be in service of that, but from what you're saying, it sounds like it's a particularly important time now to really be championing these ideals
0: you know if you if you realize how much more people in trouble and people who are lost and many people are mental illness they have mental illness because they can't cope people are overstressed they can't understand what's going on um they turn to an animal a dog a cat um I'm not taking away the joy of having a cat or a dog anyway but um, the way people are now putting animals together with people to help horses are given to disabled children unhappy children they're even trying to reform um, young people who have strayed and who are um, kept out of Borstal or Uh, um, even out of jail to look after uh, horses or animals or something because mentally it's good for them Mm. and it helps them, it helps them uh, adjust themselves and and get an aim in life it's if you look at life today and you see where certain people are going because of something, it's interesting isn't it
1: Mm. Mm it is. Okay. Um
0: science has developed to an enormous extent and I'm grateful for medical science and all those things. But at the same time nature allows certain animals and people to live. And when they're not suitable they they die. Mm
1: the Darwinism.
0: Yes. Now Today, a, a baby of five months old would never have survived before. Now they must keep it, no matter what's wrong with it. They must keep it. So, And I can understand parents in desperation say, yes, I want to keep this baby. But they go to extreme lengths to keep a child alive. And then it, probably after two or three years, they realize it's an invalid for life.
1: Mm. The quality of life's not going to be...
0: no. So is that the right thing to do? Mm. I don't know. It's it's. Um, I certainly wouldn't do it to an animal.
1: Mm. Well, that seems like a very philosophical kind of place to round out this conversation. Thank you so much, Molly, for being on my podcast and for giving insight into the life of someone who's worked in uh, secret intelligence Um it's just uh, uh, very humbling to be sitting across from here with you. I do have one question that I ask everyone uh, at the end of the interview. And the question is, what makes you silly?
2: Mm.
0: A good joke. A good joke? A good joke, a good film. Most of the films I don't watch are stupid. <laughs> I mean, this Bond stuff is rubbish. You know, mm. and Everybody's screaming about Bond. Half the uh, pop stars I could shoot. I think they're stupid.
1: Just... Not real. Not a real depiction of MI5.
0: No, 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 no. It's miles and miles and miles away.
1: You don't have a secret gadget room and cars that rubbish. shoot guns. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> have you heard any good jokes lately?
0: Um. <laughs> no. No, I'm not very good at jokes, but I like to hear them. Yeah. Um. I forget them if people tell me and I laugh. I laugh easily, mm. um, and I love laughing. And, I, and my husband will tell you, we often have a good laugh. Um, it's usually something something, something funny, um, um, subtly funny.
1: Mm. Do you think laughter is the key to a Absolutely. good marriage?
0: Absolutely, the more you'd laugh the better. Mm. It's the best medicine I know. Mm. And uh, I used to laugh a lot more than I do now, but I still laugh.
1: Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Molly.
0: Thank you. I hope I haven't put you off life. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs)